0: Father, thank you for this time. I I thank you for these saints who uh, have gathered eager to learn. I pray that you would refresh them, uh, refresh their minds, refresh their bodies, their attentiveness. Uh, God, I pray that you would um, renew all of our minds through the truth of your word in this session so that we would be able to live more faithfully and minister to others better, more helpfully God, I pray that you would also help us to not just understand uh, this, your, your design for humanity as male and female, not just to understand it more, but to love it more, to, to love and see your wisdom in it more, your glory more, to be more grateful for it. And God, I pray that you would do all of these good things in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> all right, complementarianism. Who has uh, heard this word before? Nice. Okay. Well, it's on a counseling exam. Describe the biblical understanding of manhood and womanhood from both an egalitarian and a complementarian perspective. Explain which view you embrace and outline why you believe it to be the most biblical. So uh, to answer this, right, this is a multi-part question. You need to describe... The egalitarian and the complementarian positions, it says. And then to explain which one you embrace and why, according to uh, it being the most biblical in your eyes. Actually, would you turn to the back, the uh, recommended resources? Turn to the back of your notes. Recommended resources. I passed out a handout called the Danvers Statement that the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood put out. This was put out in, I think, the late 80s by a bunch of conservative evangelical, many of them reformed uh, scholars and pastors to articulate um, a biblical view of manhood and womanhood in response to what they saw as, I think, a creeping influence of feminism on the evangelical church. They actually coined the term complementarianism and put out this uh, kind of touchstone doctrinal statement. So that's a good resource that you have. Um, there's a couple of good short articles you can look up online, I think, that are helpful. This book, Recovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, it's almost 600 pages. You can get it for free online at desiringgod.com. So that's that's neat. That's a great resource. And then one other one I want to highlight, Kevin DeYoung's Men and Women in the Church. Kevin DeYoung, Men and Women in the Church, a short biblical practical introduction. It's very good, very accessible, not overwritten uh, that that one's very helpful, talking about biblical manhood and womanhood. And since uh, presumably you're in here because you are wanting to take the ACBC exam, you, here's another good resource for you, the ACBC Standards of Doctrine, which says God made mankind in two complementary genders. So you see the word complementary, that's where complementarianism comes from. Two complementary genders of male and female who are equal in dignity and worth, Men are called to roles of spiritual leadership, particularly in the home and in the church. Women are called to respond to and affirm godly servant leadership, particularly in the church and in the home. So let's define the terms. Complementarianism. Men and women are equal. This is the complementarian view. The view of ACBC, the view of me and I assume basically all the churches that you all probably go to. Men and women are equal in dignity. Dignity. And value, yet there are distinctions in design and calling. So both men and women are fully made in the image of God, but but they're distinct, complementary expressions of God's glory, in His image. Okay, men and women are not exactly the same. When God made mankind male and female, that was not pointless, arbitrary, and there are real differences between them. They are complementary. And those real differences correspond to the differing roles and emphases that Scripture assigns to men and women. So now uh, thinking about equality from a complementarian perspective, equality, men and women are fully and equally made in God's image and fully and equally saved in Christ. So some people say this, men and women are equal in nature, creation, equal in grace, redemption, equal in glory, Eternity. Yet there is also distinction beside this equality. Men and women have differences in design and calling that are complementary. So they're different from each other, but they're different for each other, complement each other. And these differences are not interchangeable. What are these distinctions? In a family, husbands are especially designed to call, called, designed and called to lead, protect, and provide. In a family, wives are especially designed and called to help, nurture life, and manage a household. Also, men have a unique authority in the nuclear family as husbands, and a few qualified men have a unique authority in the local church family as elders, pastors. That's complementarianism in a nutshell. So here's an important question because the real, uh, I think, contention of of uh, egalitarians is that th- this rubs them the wrong way to say men have a unique authority, that the husband is is an authority over his wife. So we need to ask what is the nature of a of a husband's authority? Biblical authority in the home in church is a responsibility, not a privilege. A responsibility to ensure the family is a twofold responsibility to ensure the family's moving in a God glorifying direction. And to secure the well being of everyone in the family, even at the expense of his own well being when and if necessary by well being I mean that comprehensively, not just making sure that his wife doesn 't go to bed hungry but but physical well being spiritual well being emotional well being social well being uh, this twofold responsibility that a husband has as the head or the authority. In, in his marriage and home, it's sometimes also explained under three the three headings of a responsibility to lead, protect, and provide. Or you could say at least the primary responsibility to provide and protect. Okay, and now let me show you where this comes from the Bible. Uh, this This can be demonstrated from Genesis 1 through 3. That on the one hand, husbands, Adam is responsible to ensure the family is moving in a God-glorifying direction. This would be to lead. So God gave Adam the prohibition about the tree before the creation of Eve. And then both times God spoke about the broken command after the fall. He speaks singularly to Adam and addresses you, singular, not y'all, about the broken command. He talks about the command as given especially to him. And then God holds Adam uniquely responsible for the fall. Right when the couple transgresses, God comes looking for Adam and addresses him first. He is condemned first rightfully. He has not led his wife in the direction of trusting obedience to God's word, which was a stewardship given to him. He has not protected the the holiness of their home. He was responsible. To, to lead Eve in the sense of just keeping God's word in front of her and to ensure that that they, as a family, were walking by the light of God's word so far as that could depend on him. So, so uh, God very clearly saw Adam as primarily responsible for ensuring his family kept moving in a God-glorifying direction, not just because of how he addresses him in Genesis 3, but also because of how later Scripture talks about how sin entered the world through... Adam, Adam. Even though Eve ate the fruit first, Adam was primarily responsible. Okay, now the, the the other prong of this responsibility of a husband to secure the well-being of others in the family, which would be to provide and protect. We see this in Genesis one through three because. Adam was commanded to work and keep, or guard, you could translate that, the garden, again, before the creation of Eve. And then if you look at the curse after the fall happened, God addresses Adam and Eve distinctly and differently. And what God said to Adam specifically in the curse showed that to work and keep the garden continued to be a unique responsibility of his, even after Eve was made. To Adam, he said, Uh, working the garden is going to be hard. You're going to have by the sweat of your brow. And then to Eve, he said, raising children is going to be hard. It's going to cause pain. So the the curse introduced pain with respect to both of their emphases, at least in in what they were uh, especially supposed to devote themselves to in the family. So we see here um, biblical headship is a calling to sacrifice oneself for others not an advantage given over others. To be the head of a home is a burden to bear. It is not a privilege to envy. That that is how you should understand all leadership and godly authority, not just in the home. Adam's authority in marriage was in no way some kind of upper hand for Adam's own benefit. See, and in the world... Maybe we can understand why the world has this, this bad taste in their mouth with the idea that the husband is the authority in the home. Because in the world, authority is used in a self-centered way for, for seeking one's own interests and self-promotion. But in God's design, authority, leadership over others, it is God-centered, it is others' centers, it is a responsibility uh, to sacrifice your own interests for the interests of others. I was uh, even just a, pr- a very small practical thing. I was telling my my son. He helped me change a, a tire recently, and uh, he said it was in our driveway that we found a flat. The perfect place to find a flat, you know. And he said, "Yeah, if we were on the side of the road, you probably wouldn't have let me help." And I said, "That's right, Stephen. I wouldn't have let you help because it's dangerous. And I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't make her, but I I wouldn't want mom to help either. I would want to do it myself because." I understand that God has made me the leader, which means if one person need has to get run over by a car in this family, that's my responsibility. Okay, it's my responsibility to sacrifice my own good for the good to secure the well-being of everyone else in the family, if necessary. It's a burden to bear, not it's I'm I'm the leader in the family doesn't mean, okay I get to choose which person that's not myself to go get in danger in the road. Right. That's not biblical authority. All right, so so here's a quote that I think is helpful. Uh, Mark Dever says, when people are skittish over complementarianism, apologizing for it, I know they're probably thinking about authority in a wrong way. It is as if they think authority is only an advantage for the person who possesses it. Apparently they haven't had children. Authority looks like an advantage only to someone who doesn't have it. When you have authority, pretty much all the advantages seem to vanish unless you are abusing using your authority you begin to realize how much of a service it is a glorious service but a service is the lie that satan hissed into adam and eve's ear in the garden authority is just a way to abuse you for your leader's benefit but that's not the biblical that, that is a satanic view of authority that's not the biblical view of leadership here's another good one c.s lewis um and this is the 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 pattern of a husband's headship is the the death of Jesus. So, so what does it look like for Jesus to, to be the head and leader of the church? It looks like him hanging on the cross, dying for the church. And so, right? If that's the, if that's the kind of authority that your head exercises, well, I love to submit to that kind of authority. I love to follow that kind of leadership. And and I love this quote from C.S. Lewis then drawing on that. The Christian law has crowned the man in the permanent relationship of marriage, bestowing, or should I say inflicting, a certain headship on him. This is a very different coronation, a very different crowning. He is to love her as Christ loved the church, read on, and gave his life for her. This headship, then, is most fully embodied not in the husband we should all wish to be, but in him whose marriage is most like a crucifixion. The sternest feminist need not grudge my sex, the crown offered to it in Christian marriage, for it is a crown of thorns. The real danger is not that husbands may grasp the crown too eagerly, but that they will allow or compel their wives to usurp it. When you think about what it means for a husband to be crowned as the leader in his home, don't think of a husband sitting on a throne wearing a crown of gold, bossing his wife around. Think about a husband on a cross wearing a crown of thorns, bleeding so that the wife doesn't have to. Okay? Now, I do believe this. That in my own experience, many objections people have to complementarianism is bound up with ungodly ideas about what authority is and is for. And, and perhaps many, you know, many people have personally experienced very ungodly uses of authority, and that can make it difficult to to see the, the beauty of complementarianism. So here's supporting text, Ephesians five, Colossians three. We'll, we'll talk about some of these in a little bit, but but it talks about the husband's leadership, the wife's call to submit to his leadership, the husband's call to sacrifice for his wife And, and the, and differing emphases that they might have in the church and the home. And really, these texts, I think, are just so clear. To, you've got to do some serious interpretive gymnastics to try and understand these texts in a, in a not teaching complementarianism. But, some do, and this is called egalitarianism. Uh, has anyone heard that word? Egalitarianism. Okay. So in this view, uh, men and women are equal in dignity and value. And here's the logic, or illogic, therefore there are no distinctions in roles and callings. See, they say if there are distinctions in roles and callings, especially distinctions that have to do with leadership and authority, well, that means therefore that there, there's not a true equality of dignity and value. But the question is, if you say that, how are you measuring dignity and value? You're saying there's more dignity and value in exercising authority than in submitting to authority. That's a very ungodly way to think about authority and power. So practically, they would say men have no unique authority in the home as husbands. uh, Or and if that is just so happens to be the case in one marriage, it it could just as well have been the other in another. It's kind of interchangeable. And women may be local church elders or pastors. So here, here's a question I, I hinted at earlier: How do we measure a person's value and dignity if, if they say that fundamental equality requires equal authority and equal responsibility? Well, uh, it does that. Does that logic hold only if you measure a person's value and dignity uh, to say that that uh, you know authority? is is what is most valuable and what most dignifies people so so i think we could say from the bible a person's worth and dignity is measured by his capacity and opportunity to fulfill the purpose of his existence to glorify god to image god so if people have equal capacity equal opportunity to image god and to know him then they are of totally equal worth value dignity and honor if you can glorify and enjoy god uh, being the head of a home just as much as you can submitting to the head of a home then you are equal in value and dignity and honor and husbands just because they're called to lead do, do they do not have a greater capacity to image and glorify god than their wives um the 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 their eve was created to be adam's helper and and uh, in the Old Testament, that word "helper" sometimes used for God. God is the help of His people. That there's a special reflection of the glory of God that, that comes with that opportunity. Just like there's a special opportunity to reflect the glory of God that comes with leading and taking Christ-like responsibility. So here are some texts egalitarians cite for support of their passage. Galatians three twenty-eight. Does anyone know what that says? Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male nor female in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 5.21 says, submit to one another. We'll talk about that text in a little bit. And then the slavery text they bring up. All right, well, let's, let's talk about this. The Bible's big story. Where does the husband's leadership in marriage come from? Clearly, complementarians and egalitarians say it's in the Bible. See it. But where did it come from? Is it part of God's good design in creation or is it a distortion of God's good design in creation? Is it something to be embraced or something to be repented of? And so um, complementarians would say in creation establishes husband's leadership in the family. Egalitarians would say there's no husband leadership and equal authority and responsibility in the Garden of Eden. Complementarians say, in the fall, that's when sinful distortions of a husband's authority enter the world. Egalitarians say, no, the fall is when a husband's ruling the home actually started to be a thing. It's a result of sin. It's a distortion of God's good design for the family. Complementarians would say, then redemption undoes the fall, and including reversing the effects of, of sin, that's the sinful distortions of male leadership. And it restores the good of creation, sacrificial loving headship, Egalitarians would say, uh, well, the redemption we have in Christ um, undoes the fall, including this male leadership and uh, unequal responsibility. And it restores the good of creation, which is equal authority. So both sides agree that the ideal is what God established in creation. So we need to take a closer look at creation. Creation, complementarian, is a part of God's good design, not a sinful distortion of it. So so let's affirm this equality and distinction. Uh, men and women are equal in dignity and value. Both are fully created in God's image. Both are given the creation mandate. God blessed them. God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God said to them, have dominion over all the earth. So Adam and Eve are called to exercise authority together as co-regents ruling over the world God has given them. And egalitarians will say, see, what they exercise authority together. One is not one doesn't have a special authority over the other. And that's just a false distinction. Both of those things can be true. They exercise authority together over the world God has given them, their children, um, You know, their home, other things, but also within this one flesh partnership of equals, whereby they're taking dominion together, one serves as sacrificial head and the other serves as submissive helper. Both are true. Also, emphasizing their equality and dignity and value, Eve is a helper suitable or corresponding to Adam. Adam. Adam says, this is my equal, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And finally, the two become one flesh. Which also emphasizes their equality in nature, essence, dignity, value, personhood. All the other animals that were less than Adam in dignity and, and value and personhood could not become one flesh with him. Okay, so there's this equality and yet they're distinct, complementary in design and calling, including Adam's headship. Okay, here's where this comes from. First, Adam was created first. Now that may sound at first like a, like a arbitrary point you know like na na boo boo i was created first but actually the order of creation that, that that affirms adam's leadership that's the holy spirit's idea and in the new testament uh, he tells us that first uh, timothy two twelve, paul says i do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man talking about specifically the gathered assembly of the church and here's the reason he says for adam was formed first then Eve. So, so Adam was the head of the wife. That's demonstrated by the fact he was he was formed first. You think about how the Bible uses the language of the firstborn. Christ is called the firstborn from the dead. It indicates that that he has been given authority. All right. Also, Adam and Eve were created differently in ways that reflect their distinct calling. Now, this is interesting. Eve was created from Adam. And also for Adam in the sense that that she was made to be specifically his helper. And again, this is a New Testament perspective. This is the Holy Spirit's interpretation. 1 Corinthians 11.8. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. And 11.9 says, neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head. Uh, head covering is a different topic, okay? But but the idea is that Eve was created from Adam and in a, in a sense for him, in the sense to be his helper. Well, that just shows a, a distinct calling that she has. Adam was created in a different way, from the ground. And, and that also shows kind of the distinct calling that he had. Adam's created from the ground. God calls him, in a sense, especially to be responsible to work and keep the ground. God creates Eve from Adam and then calls her especially to, to take responsibility to be his, his helper. These are They have complementary roles and the, the differing ways they were created shows this. Also, as I talked about, the details of the curse correspond to God's complementary callings for Adam and Eve um, that God... God specifically told Adam, okay, now working the ground is going to hurt. Told Eve, okay, now your relationship to your husband's gonna hurt, and your your bearing of children's going to hurt. Also, their names indicate this. The, the name Adam means ground, ground man. Dirtbag, you know. <laughs> Worker of the ground. The name Eve means what? Living, life, mother of the living. Okay? So this also points to a kind of distinction in in their calling. Also, Adam bore primary responsibility for the fall. We've kind of already talked about that. This is despite Eve's transgressing the command first. Sin and death entered the world through Adam. Or so it appeared to us that Eve transgressed the command first. But in God's eyes, in in an ultimate way, was Adam's responsibility of this first sin. Also, the fall overturned every relationship of authority established in creation. This is also God God gave authority to man and woman together to exercise authority over the animals, including the creeping things. And within this one flesh partnership of equals, the husband served as the loving head. What happened in the fall? Well, that was completely flipped over. Uh, Adam and Eve... Submitted to a serpent, a creeping thing, de- Satan came in that way, in defiance of God. And Adam did not lead uh, his wife in a God-glorifying direction. In a way that, that God doesn't primarily say, um, Eve, that's your fault, but Adam's fault. He tells Adam in the curse, you listened to the voice of your wife. You didn't lead like you should have. This command I gave to you even before, this, before she was made. So so this also illustrates complementarianism, how the fall overturned every relationship of authority established in creation. Also, Adam named Eve. Remember the significance of the naming of things in the story of creation. God named the sun and the moon. He named the day and the night. And then he told Adam, name all the animals. And that showed how Adam was given dominion over the animals. Well, Adam also then named Eve. And finally, complementarianism is clear in... Even God's good plan in creation because God named humanity male and female man. Genesis 5, 1 and 2 says, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of Adam. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and he named them man. The Hebrew word Adam. He named them Adam when they were created. I believe all this demonstrates that their men and women in the Garden of Eden had complementary differences from each other that were for each other. And that part of that was that Adam was given a responsibility to lead his family in a God glorifying direction and to ensure the well-being of everyone else in his family, even at the expense of his own, if necessary. That is, he was he was made the head Finally, uh, God's distinct and complementary designs for Adam and Eve is what makes procreation and marital union possible. He made them male and female, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply. Being fruitful and multiplying depends on them being male and female. And so this also shows the distinct complementary differences of men and women. We didn't used to have to you know, point that out explicitly, but um, these are different times. so We need to. Any questions about this so far? Is it making sense? Yeah. Oh, this is on the theology exam. Yes, the theology exam. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Good clarification. Thank you for that. Yes. Yes. Yes, yes, yeah, it it will look. I think the specifics of how it looks is not necessarily going to be exactly the same. But somehow this the, these principles should be expressed within the particulars of every culture. Yeah. Mhm. Like what what? What would I do? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a great conversation. Um I think I would, you know, uh, Elizabeth Elliot's a great example of this. Um and I think uh the way she thought about it was commendable. She was a godly con- convinced complementarian. Um actually don't remember the particulars of what she did. But, but I, would, I think I would encourage in that situation, a, a, a woman will have to, at some level, if she's the only one who knows the Bible and can say anything true about it, be one who teaches. But I would encourage her to do that in the way that the Bible says all Christians should teach one another. Colossians 3.16 says... Uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. So I would encourage her to do that in to to have this word ministry, but to try and do it in a way that it, that it is. She's specifically trying to come across like this is a kind of one another ministry of the word. And when there are other Christians, they will be able to participate in this same kind of ministry I'm doing no matter who they are. No, no matter what gender they are, but even from the beginning, we're at least trying to follow what God's designed for the the difference between, yeah, yes, complementarianism. Yes, well, actually, I mean, there's yeah, I would, I would. I would quibble with that, but I do think there are some cultures in the world that are more egalitarian and I think they're they are out of step with, with God's design. The way that the Bible presents this is, is it's not specific to a culture, but this is rooted in God's plan for humanity. In the Garden of Eden, all peoples came from Adam and Eve. And the New Testament, you know, affirms that. And when the New Testament, as we'll see, when the New Testament gives instructions about complementarianism. He gives reasons why the husband should lead in the home. And he gives reasons why men should be pastors. And the reasons he gives are never because of something that's culturally specific. It's because of God's good plan in creation and God's good good design in redemption. And so it transcends culture. And so I think, you know, there are parts of every culture that will be more or less godly. And every culture needs some when the gospel comes in, some parts of that culture needs to be rejected. Some parts of that culture needs to be kind of renewed in some way. And some parts of that culture can be in some ways just kind of let's just use this for the glory of God and give God glory for this good thing that just by the light of nature we were doing. Yeah. 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 Thank you. That's a, those are excellent questions. But there, there are actually, there's a, a book that came out Recently called by Nancy Piercy, called the "Toxic War on Masculinity." <laughs> it's a, it's a hilarious, cheeky title, but in uh, in some ways only a woman could write it. But she's a great scholar, um, and and what she has one of the things she shows is that throughout all cultures, basically through history, there has been a vision, by and large, of masculinity that is holds men primarily responsible for protecting and providing and, and I think the third one she has is procreating, but like leading as a father. So, yeah. So that might be an interesting resource for you to read. Yeah. hmm Okay. So the fall, the fall is when sinful distortions of complementarianism enter the world. And here's the debated text that egalitarians will point to. Well, in the curse, God says to Eve, he shall rule over you. Say, ah, see, this is a result of sin that, that he's going to be ruler in the home. And how would we respond to that? We'll say, well, this can't begin Adam's headship. Let's remember everything we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Not to mention what the New Testament's going to tell us. But also, here's an important parallel. Genesis 4, 7 that verse 316, uh, your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. Those two Hebrew words are used in parallel, just like that in Genesis 4:7, When the Lord says to Cain, sin's desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin is wanting to get the mastery over you. And you must you you must resist that. So so listen. I like how Ray Ortland explains this. He he says about Genesis four seven its connection to three sixteen. Sin has a desire, Cain. It wants to control you, but you must not allow to ha- sin to have its way with you. You must rule over it. So just as sin's desire is to have its way with Cain, God gives woman up like kind of Romans one gives her over to a desire to have her way with her husband. And because she will be tempted to usurp his leadership, his headship in this temptation, God hands her over to the misery of a kind of competition with her rightful head. And he he will respond to this uh, sinful rejection of a husband's headship. He will respond to this and and lead with this in addition to responding to it. It's not just her fault. He will rule over her in a, not a loving, uh, sacrificial way, but in a, in a heavy-handed, self-interested way. So... So the desire in the curse on Eve specifically refers to her desire to control, to usurp headship, to resist the husband's headship. And here in the fall, because of the curse of sin, then marriage, we see why marriages disintegrate disintegrate into a power struggle between husband and wife. So, okay, here's a chart for you. Complementarianism is distorted in the fall. God's good design is loving, humble headship, but but in the fall we see distortion: a husband being passive, like Adam was when Eve ate the fruit; he was standing there, or responding by by uh, domination, heavy-handed, authoritarian. And also the wife, instead of being a willing, submissive helper, is will be tempted to to usurp that or to a kind of um, servility, which is not a, a bold, courageous, wholehearted wholehearted you know um helping now as we talked about also the story of the fall illustrates this sinful distortion of leadership though in in, you can see that chart on display at least some of it and also as we've seen the curse the details of it correspond to distinct pre-fall roles of adam and eve so the egalitarian reading of the fall fails but here's where egalitarianism really has a hard time. Is the New Testament in redemption? The New Testament doesn't say. Hooray redemption is here. The effects of the fall. we are, are starting to overcome in Christ. We're brought back toward the Garden of Eden. So let's all be egalitarians. No. No. Complementarianism is reaffirmed. In light of how we've been redeemed in Christ. Saved from the curse of sin. So the New Testament instruction for marriage does not oppose complementarianism, but rather it does oppose the sinful distortions of it. Husbands are called to sacrifice for their wives. Husbands are called don't be harsh with your wives. It's against the distortion of leadership, not against leadership itself. Uh, like, like, you live with your wife in an understanding way. And, and don't be passive. You are the head of your wife. You are to lay your life down for her and cherish her and and Look after her sanctification, and then on the other side. So that's against the husband's passivity or domination. There are texts that that would encourage wives against a kind of usurpation, all the submit to your husband texts, or or a servility, um, a temptation j- just to, to to give give up your will, which is not not true submission. And First Peter three gives a good good uh, example of that. Okay, so. I said this earlier, but this is very important New Testament instructions for complementary are explicitly grounded in the good of creation and redemption and and here 's why one reason that's so important because we see this is not just bound by a certain culture, which egalitarians will say, well, what about the instructions for slaves we don 't say we don 't say slavery is good, but the Bible tells slaves to submit to their masters. Well, the Bible never grounds the instructions to slaves in the good of creation and redemption he never says this situation that that slaves need to submit to their masters is is something that reflects the glory of the gospel in fact in first peter seven he says to slaves if you have an opportunity to gain your freedom you should do it <laughs> but, uh, pretty interesting so so you know egalitarians do bring out that that this parallel sometimes to say uh let's say submission to slaves but you don't think slavery is good do you Well no the gospel itself undermines the institution of slavery The submission text about marriage the gospel does not undermine the institution of marriage as being something not good Actually the gospel says the institution of marriage reflects the glory of the gospel Okay Also, the New Testament continues to affirm the distinct callings of men and women rooted in God's creation design. Callings, callings. Um, And for time's sake, I'm going to keep going, okay? Now, let's keep going. We've talked about in creation, the fall, redemption, now consummation. In the consummation, the new creation. Okay, here, here we go. We won't be married to each other in the new creation. Jesus said, in the resurrection, we're like the angels, neither married nor given in marriage. So egalitarians, here's another line of argumentation they use. They say, okay, well, look, we're not going to be married in heaven. You're not going to be wife. You're not going to be submitting to your husband as your husband in in heaven. And so uh, we're citizens of heaven now. We should live like egalitarians. And and the the problem with that is, is... um, There will continue to be complementarianism in marriage, in heaven, but it won't refer to our marriage. It will refer to the marriage that actually exists in heaven between Jesus and the church. And if you want your marriage on earth to tell the truth about the marriage that's going to exist in heaven, this is a complementarian thing. Uh, Marriage is fulfilled by the enduring relationship of Christ and the church. Only complementarianism in marriage tells the truth about this ultimate forever marriage. Relationship is that blank. Just as Eve was meant to... This is beautiful. Just as Eve in the original creation was meant to reign with Adam over all creation. Take dominion, both of you. Even while she acknowledged his headship, so the church and the new creation will reign with Christ have dominion over the whole creation, with Him, even as we continue to submit to His headship, and He continues to lead and care for us. It's beautiful. Complementarianism is beautiful, and it will be beautiful in the new creation in the way that we reign with Christ. Christ doesn't treat His bride like a doormat. Christ doesn't treat. Christ doesn't sit on His throne and say to His bride, "Be a footstool for My feet," like He does His enemies. He tells his bride, sit with me on my throne and reign with me. And that's that's the kind of leadership that Christian husbands are, are called to exercise over their wives also. Not to treat them like doormats or footstools, but to say, sit on this throne with me and let's, let's rule over the world God has given us together. And I'll, I'll take responsibility for <laughs> making sure that we're moving in the right direction so far as that depends on me and, and that you're taken care of. All right, so challenges to complementarianism. I've talked about some of these already. Do complementarians understand or apply these texts wrongly? These ones that seem so clear. Okay, Is here's, here's the biggest one probably. Ephesians 5.22, wives submit to your husbands. Ephesians 5.21 says submit to one another. So egalitarians use verse 21 to club verse 22 and say see... Yes, a husband is supposed to, a wife is supposed to submit to her husband, but it's just the same way that, that husbands are supposed to submit to their wives, because verse 21 says submit to one another. Okay, how do we understand this? Mutual submission. All right, well, the bigger picture, submission here, submit to one another doesn't mean, this is, this is how I read it, some complementarians read this differently. By collapsing submission and serving. And submitting and serving are not the same thing. But I argue. Submission. Submit to one another. Doesn't mean every single person. Submit to every single other person. It means y'all need to. Y'all church. You need to submit to one another. In accordance with the lines of authority. That God has given. And so he talks about. Submit to one another. Wives submit to your husbands. Slaves submit to your masters children obey your parents and like there's a there's a parallel first peter 2 where he says um, he says be subject for the lord's sake to every human institution and then he goes on the same the same lines of authority that that Paul described in Ephesians 5:21 be subject to every human institution so So submit to one another doesn't mean every single individual submitting to every single other individual. And one another works that way sometimes. Like Revelation talks about people who are killing one another. And that doesn't mean that every single person was killing every single other person. Like there was perfect double kills every time. No, it means like some in this group are killing others in this group. Okay, so submit to one another. You understand in this line. Some in this group... Submit to others in this group. And, and there's all kinds of lines in authority here in the church. Slaves, submit to your masters, wives to your husbands, all of you to the government, all of you to the pastors, children to the husbands. All of us are called to, at one level, exercise authority, if nothing else, over the creation. And all of us are called to submit to authority of different kinds. Every person, every man, every woman. But how should we do that? In accordance with the institutions of authority that God has established. The government and the creation in the home, in the church, in the workplace, okay? So here's the the bigger picture, submission in the New Testament. It never describes, this word submission never describes a relationship of reciprocal authority. And reciprocal authority just doesn't even make sense. You know what makes sense? Reciprocal serving. You serve me, I serve you. But to say, I will line up under your authority, you line up under my authority, Here, here's an example. Submit to one another, and then he talks about wives and husbands, then he talks about children and parents. Children need to obey their parents. Do parents need to obey their children? No, all the parents in the room are like, mm-mm. Have, do I submit to my daughter my, my or my baby son when I change his diaper? No, I'm not submitting to him, but I am stooping to serve him you know, and and, uh, wipe his mess, I I am ranking myself under him in this sense. I'm willing to serve him, like to wash his feet. But I'm not lining myself up under his authority. There's a difference between serving and submitting. One has to do with authority. One doesn't. Yes. 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 yeah not doing it joyfully not not kind of a wholeheartedly even perhaps not really engaging like fine i'll I'll just do whatever you say or perhaps even like not uh resisting if he asks uh, if a husband asks or leads her into sin it's like well just fine it's easier to just not fight it i'll do whatever almost like i don't like this word but like, like becoming just a doormat, you know, that's fine. I won't, I won't really apply myself and have agency in this relationship of submission. I won't submit as an act of my agency. I'm just like getting rid of my agency and doing what's easy. Yeah. Does that does that help? Yeah. If you think of a better synonym for civility or servility that would is more clear, I thought about that when I said I was like that, that was just not very clear to people i'm sure of that if you think of a better one tell me after it used to say doormat and i took that out It's like that's just too abrasive i don't want to say that it's servility so if you have a better idea let me know all right is a husband called to submit by loving serving honoring and deferring to his wife being anxious to please her uh, he's supposed to do all of those things he's supposed to be the lead servant he's supposed to serve lower than she is but that's not an act of submission here's Here's my example. did Christ ever submit himself to his disciples? He served his disciples. did Christ submit to his disciples when he washed their f- feet? No, you know what he you know what he said to them while he washed after he washed their feet? He didn't say, "Don't call me Lord and Master, I'm your servant. He said, "You call me Lord and Master, and so I am. If I, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet see uh, submitting and serving or not standing. Also, when Jesus died on the cross for us, did he submit to us? Did he submit himself, line his, line up under our authority, submit to our will? No. His death on a cross was an act of submission, but not submission to us. Submission to God the Father, right? All right. So that, that's, that's my answer to that. Also, I mean, if you say that mutual submission Mutual submission refers to, yeah, that that text teaches mutual submission. We've also got a problem with these other letters that tell wives to submit to their husbands and don't say anything about submit to one another. Like Paul just left the Colossians hanging and Peter left all the churches in Asia hanging with his instructions about marriage. So on, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And see, that that's the thing, the world... The world doesn't see that they have an ungodly view of authority, such that if the one who submits has to be the servant. A call to to be to submit is a call to be the servant. But but godly authority, the call to be the leader is the call to be the biggest servant. And both the leader and and the submitter are called to serve. In fact, there's a great verse in First Kings. Remember where where um, Solomon's foolish son ascended to the throne. And the old, his old advisors were like, "Hey, take it easy on the people." And his young, foolish advisors were like, "You need to, you need to tell them that, you're, uh, I don't know, you're going to be extra hard, worse than the father." And the older men tell him, "Listen, if you serve the people, they will serve you." It's, it's beautiful in this relationship of authority over a people. The vision cast. Two supposedly this ideal king is you serve them be their servant and they will serve you so there is mutual service in in this relationship of authority but all right another challenge does head really connote any sense of authority sometimes you hear this too and and honestly some of these things i think these arguments are i just i heard them a long time ago i didn't think they were persuasive it was like and, and so I'm surprised sometimes. But these things really are alive and well on the Internet. And people you will probably minister to will find them on a blog somewhere and tell you, listen, I have found out what the Greek word for head really means. It doesn't mean head like authority. It means head like the headwaters of a spring. It, it doesn't mean leader. It means source. Uh, like <coughs> Eve came from. Adam. That's all it's saying when it says husband or the head of their wife. That that man was the source of woman, but now every man comes from woman. They're interdependent. Paul says that to show their interdependence. So this word head doesn't have anything to do with authority, really. Well, actually, no. The Greek word head does mean uh, authority and leader, and, and there are lots of ways to show that, but we don't have time. I just at least want to expose you to that argument, so you so you've, you've you can say nah nah. I've heard that one. All right. Next, our complementarian texts, like the instructions for slavery, we've already talked about how it's not it's not like that. What about Galatians three twenty eight? This one is personal for me. I grew up, uh, I grew up in an egalitarian church, and a um, lot of a lot of faithful Christians were there, and um, I'm so I'm grateful for their influence. But um, had a lot of other problems too. Egalitarian was one of them. We were doing this, some other kids started this Bible study where we would read a book of the New Testament and then get together and talk about it. I'd never read the Bible really in my life. You know, I'd watch Veggie Tales at church. That was our Bible study. And so when, one of the books, we read First Peter. It's like, okay, First Peter. Okay, 1st peter Peter's got some complementarian stuff. And I thought, oh no, oh no, what does this mean? I I need to go talk to Pastor Sherry about this. So I did. I went and I, I talked to Pastor Sherry, who was the female pastor of the church I went to, and said, listen, I'm in this Bible study with these kids, and we're talking about 1 First First Timothy, and 1 Timothy says this. Did you know that? What do you, what do you have to say about that? What do you think Pastor Sherry told me? Don't worry about it. She said, don't worry about it, kind of, because Galatians 3.28 She's took me. look, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Well, so that actually that so that that's one that egalitarians go to. But obviously what that verse is saying in context is that men or women are saved equally and and with equal fullness. There is no privilege of salvation that a man has that a woman doesn't have is equally free to them and equally full for them. And here here's some parallel text the colossians text that parallels um there is basically says there is no jew or greek slave or free it says the same theology as galatians 3 then right after that it it gives instructions for wives to submit to their husbands so uh those, those two things are not truths that cancel each other out in any sense all right you know what let's see uh two minutes so we'll go through this real quickly but that's okay because probably the the people that come to you for counsel Are going to be people who are not asking you, um, you know, not ladies asking you whether or not they should be pastors. It's going to be people, Christians, who are wanting help with their marriage and how to relate to each other in complementarian ways in marriage. But also, it's good to lay this big foundation about the home because here's what I want you to see complementarianism in the church, which is explicitly promoted in the New Testament in these passages. And in, in, in these ways that it says teaching and exercising authority in the church, which is leading our functions of an office of, of an elder pastor who is, who is to be a man. But but in these passages, complementarianism in marriage grounds complementarianism in the church. When Paul says, I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, like as the elder teaching the gathered assembly of the church... He, he roots that in God's plan for the family, the family. Um, so so if someone says, well, yeah, I think that a husband is called to be the special leader of his home, but they don't apply that to from that vision of complementarianism in the family to the church family. And some evangelicals do this. They say, yeah, I'm a complementarianism in the home, but I think we should be egalitarians in the church. And that's just not how the scripture argues. Scripture argues we should be complementarians in the church precisely because God's plan for complementarianism in the home. And, and part of the rationale for this is that God's design for the family is reflected in the church because the church is like a family. Finally, Paul's instructions for complementarianism in the church fit the pattern of leadership amongst God's people that's found throughout the Old and New Testament. All right, 1115, any, any final questions?